everyone, and welcome to another episode of Word on the Street. This is our third episode in the new quarter, um, but our second episode of the uh, Growing Up Mix series. And so I am joined today by, again, Hannah and Grace, but we are also joined by our lovely director, Joanna Thompson, Dr. Joanna Thompson. And so now I will kick it off to everybody else to introduce themselves, although I should probably do that first for myself. Hi, if you don't recognize my voice already. <laughs> Uh, my name is Anissa, she, her, I am a, a student inclusion educator with the uh, Rainbow Resource Center, aka the RRC. You if you've been listening, you kind of know me already, but all right, I'm going to go ahead and turn it to our other hosts today. Um, I'm Hannah Kamau-Peely, she, her, and I'm an SIE over at OML. And I'm Grace, I use she, her pronouns, and I'm also an SIE with the Office for Multicultural Learning. And hi, everyone again. I'm Dr. Joanna Thompson, the director of the Office for Multicultural Learning, which also includes the Rainbow Resource Center. Pronouns are she, her, hers, or they, them, theirs. All right. So thank you, everybody, for introducing yourselves again. Uh, I'm so happy to be here with all of you via Zoom. I know there has been an uptick in cases, which is why we're trying to be safe as possible. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and whoever wants to kind of summarize what we're doing today, uh, can go ahead and do so. So today we're going to be hearing from Dr. Thompson about her dissertation, which is titled Mixed Conceptions, an Analysis of Mixed Race College Students and Racialized Bullying. And I, for one, am so excited to hear a bit about the dissertation and to get into the questions we have. So I'll turn it over to Dr. Thompson to tell us a little bit about what her PhD process looked like, how she landed on a topic, and we can go from there. Yeah, awesome. I will say academics love to talk about their work, so it's exciting to be able to <laughs> be here with you all, but also because I also identify as mixed. So uh, this work and just kind of the work around mixed race has always been near and dear to my heart. Um, I identify as Black and Latina. So my dad, if you were to ask him, he's just a Black dude from Washington, D.C. And my mom is Latina. She's from Nicaragua and immigrated to the United States in like the 70s when she was in high school um, and has actually never been back to Nicaragua, which is actually really interesting. Um, so for me to be able to eventually like find this moment of being in academia and doing research uh, really just about myself. <laughs> it was really awesome to get the opportunity. Uh, but before we had, you know, started recording, talking a little bit about the challenges that came with that. And primarily it did come around more of the mixed race portion of my dissertation. My background in terms of academics is criminology. And it, there was a lot of like pushback from folks who were um, in my department, whether it was faculty members, mostly faculty members, not really my fellow grad students, who just didn't understand the whole like mixed race identity in terms of, you know, how is that potentially either criminalized or victimized in some way? Is that a reality that people are facing? Um, at the time when I was working on my dissertation, so this was back in like 2015, 2016, unfortunately, there was still a lack of research just around mixed race identities. A lot of the research was still grounded in particularly 
and I talk about this in my dissertation, the black white binary and just kind of biracial identity, but we know that there's so many other mixtures, right? And so I think that lack of knowledge kind of made people, you know, turn up an eyebrow of like, mm, what is this? Is this really a thing? Um, and again, with the intersection of criminology, there's like no literature <laughs> around that. And so just trying to find a gap to be able to contribute to was really difficult. And I took it personally because it's like, well, I know this experience and I know other people have these experiences. So give me the opportunity to find that out. Right. Um, so luckily I found uh, an advisor who was able to just, you know, use his background in interpersonal development and interpersonal victimization and violence and marry that with my, my idea. Uh, I will say that my idea for my dissertation, the final product that is, you know, shown and shared with the world, it took me at least a good two years to figure that out, <laughs> um, which probably added on an extra layer to getting my PhD and just having it be way too long. Um, but once I figured it out and was really start to find the people that I needed to be able to support me, things started coming together. And it actually started with me going outside of the United States. Uh, so during my time as a master's student, I had found a lot of research that was going on around mixed race in England. And it was really fascinating to me because I didn't think that that would be a point of conversation or just not really knowing about like race, race and ethnicity within kind of the United Kingdom standpoint. Um, and in particular, there was the University of Leeds, which is about three hours north of London. And they have a, a center for uh, ethnicity and race studies or SIRS for short. And I found that they were having like this conference on mixed race and like all of this stuff. And it was just like, oh my goodness, like this group of people who care about these things and like identify as this. And I had reached out to them and one of their program directors was like, yeah, like come out and study abroad with us. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Um, and as a first-gen person, as a first-gen student, as just a person of color, it was like, I cannot afford <laughs> to go across the world <laughs> to study abroad. But luckily, I was able to muster up the resources and be there for one month. Um, it was the month, it was the year of 2016, 2015. Time is irrelevant at this point. Um, but it was one of the most awesome months. One, to just be able to study abroad. It was something that I had never thought of doing. And to be able to get that opportunity as a master's student was awesome. But to be able to learn more about mixed race identity from folks who have a different perspective, to learn more about the international perspective, um, to be able to be with scholars who knew that this was a thing and were passionate about it and didn't look at me like I was crazy every time I mentioned it. And I learned a lot during that time and brought it back with me to be able to to continue my work and my research. Uh, and at that point is when I started to find other people. So the folks who are actually a part of my dissertation committee, both at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where I got my degree, but then also outside of that, um, were really kind of, I don't know, they were just like landing in my, in my sphere. Um, and it allowed me to also figure out those connections to the criminology aspect, which is what I was really interested in. Um, and that's where like the bullying and harassment part comes in, in terms of those intersections of how, how are people treated because of the mixed race or biracial 
racial, multiracial identity that they have. And luckily, the person who is on my committee, um, Dr. Dorothy Espelage, she's actually like the leading researcher in bullying and harassment research. And so for her to even just be a part of my committee, I think was an awesome thing. Um, But in in a nutshell, my research, uh, I was at grad school in Chicago at the time and really wanted to focus on college students. And that really came from the bullying and harassment piece because when you think about bullying at least, um, you think about little kids and a lot of the research looks at like the K through 12 age. And then when you think about harassment, it's mostly workplace harassment. So post-college or in the workplace. But there was this gap of knowledge of like, but what's going on in college? Because we know that students are still dealing with microaggressions. They're still dealing with those interpersonal challenges in terms of friendships and relationships. And so that was kind of my first in, in terms of finding that gap. And then being able to layer that onto the multiracial mixed race identity of understanding the history of how that's really come to be in the United States. Um, You know, how is that in a way victimized in terms of, you know, the way in which we treat people who are biracial or multiracial um, and trying to find literature to be able to, you know, plug in all of those gaps. And I was fortunate to be able to do a mixed, um, it's kind of ironic that I did a mixed (laughs) method study. (laughs) Uh, So a survey and interviews, Uh, I was able to survey the entire just kind of campus community, one of those mass emails where it's like, you never know who's going to, you know, read it and fill it out. Um, And I was just so grateful to be able to hear from so many students, both undergraduate and graduate. Um, UIC also has a a pretty high population of like non-traditional students, as they say. So just adult learners who are part of the campus population. Um, So yeah, I had uh, 414 survey responses. So about an 80% completion rate of students who shared their experiences, not just being multiracial or, or mixed, but also just with bullying and harassment, which was really interesting to see from that college perspective of like, wow, there's a lot going on behind the scenes that we may not know. Um, and out of that 414, I was able to really narrow down, okay, but who identifies as mixed race, multiracial, and 156 respondents had identified as that. So that gave me a pool to be able to pull from to do interviews. Um, And luckily, I was able to interview... I'm trying to remind myself really quickly because it's been so long. Um, I think it was about like 12 people, 12 to 13 individuals. And the awesome part about this and really the awesome part about my research was that I wanted to move away from the black-white binary. Um, And that was no shade to folks who identify as black-white, but there was so much research and so much focus on that already that it was like, well, what about all of the other identities that we see at those intersections? And so I made it a point to be able to, I would still talk to or just look at the data from folks who identify as black and white, but for my interviews, I really tried to interview people who were outside of that binary. So out of the 12 people that I interviewed, it was different genders, um, different years in school, whether it was first year, second year, um, you know, graduate students. But I had mixtures from white and Japanese to Mexican and Puerto Rican to Black and East Indian to um 
Aboriginal Indian and just, I mean, just so many different identities. And it was really neat to just kind of see the diversity that we had on our campus um, and talk a little bit more about how folks really, you know, see themselves and how others see themselves. And one of the other pieces that really shaped my work um, was the framework that I decided to use, which we actually use in, in OML, um, which is the social ecological theory, uh, to be able to look at all of the different relationships that a person has on the individual level, the peer level, the school and community and social level. How does that impact not only how they see themselves as multiracial, but how does that impact, again, the relationships that they have with others, and maybe how that might might um, impact things like bullying and harassment. And so there were so many like amazing things that came out of those interviews. Um, most of the interviews were a couple hours long. <laughs> uh, my shortest interview was maybe 30 minutes. And I think it was a first year student. She was really nervous. And I think she just wanted to like, you know, just be done with it. Um, but my longest interview was over three hours. And it was an opportunity, I think, for that particular student to answer questions that she had never been asked before. It's like, wow, like you wanna know about this identity and I wanna share that with people. Um, and the way that my dissertation kind of reported out the findings were in relation to the social ecological model and really thinking about, okay, these are the themes that popped up and where do they fit in the model? Um, and honestly, the results looked, you know, had started even before students had gotten to college. Um, and that really kind of blended in with like that individual portion of the, the framework uh, that students had already started to experience, had, had already experienced things like bullying and harassment even before college. The common theme was that I've been going through this since elementary school, right? You know, students asking me, well, how do you identify or what are you? Or, you know, again, the microaggressions, comments about about what you look like or what you don't look like. And it really was just like a lifelong thing that no matter where you were, no matter if you moved from state to state or place to place, that was always a part of this, you know, as I label it, the sense of victimization, right? And then as you move through um, the data and kind of some of the other things, um, one of the things that I like to, I called it being cosmetically mixed and the impact of colorism was definitely a common theme for the respondents, um, particularly a lot of the folks who identified within like the Latinx or black diaspora, um, you know, people commenting on your hair or how pretty your skin is, or, oh my gosh, you're so, you know, you're so good looking for a mixed person and how that impacted, again, you know, the, the impact of that microaggression um, on that person. And then one piece that was really interesting from my dissertation that I hadn't asked questions about, but it seemed to pop up in pretty much every interview was relationships and dating. Um, and it was really hard to hear about this because I hadn't thought about it prior to starting my research. Um, but a lot of the female identified folks in my research had talked about being exoticized in their relationships or unfortunately, you know, particularly male identified people who would pick them out because of the way that they looked um, or would, you know, ask them out and, you know, say, oh my goodness, you know, I, you're, I like how you look so exotic or, you know, just all of these things and just, again, icky microaggressions that had happened. So it was really interesting, again, that I hadn't asked people these questions about that, but it just popped up in their experiences of what they wanted to share. Um, one of the other components of the ecological framework is family. 
And an interesting result that came from my research was the impact of many of these students were coming from single parent homes. Um, their parents had either been divorced or had been separated, but that impacted how they viewed their own mixed race identity because they didn't have access to both sides, for example. Um, so some of my some of the students that I talked to only grew up with like the white side or the Latinx side or the Japanese side. And it really kind of put them in a position of like, I don't know who I am, right? Like, I don't know the full story of my identity. And I know that there's these two sides, but I may resonate more with one and I want to learn about the other, but I just can't. Um, and it was really interesting, especially for the participants who did have some sort of like white side where even just talking about like race and ethnicity was like, we don't do that. Like it was very uncomfortable. It made, you know, it brought up a lot of like bad memories for parents and grandparents, um, which was really interesting to know. And then as we move through the model, you know, just talking about being mixed in college and what that meant, um, especially for the grad students who had not attended the University of Illinois at Chicago for their undergrad and reflecting upon their undergraduate studies and how that was either similar or different to being in grad school. Um, and depending upon the dynamics of, of or the demographics around them, for example, one student had gone to undergrad at the University of North Carolina, which was a totally different place than Chicago. And so, you know, he felt a little bit more accepted there or well, less accepted there because there weren't a lot of black people. There weren't a lot of people of color. But then when he came to Chicago, like he was able to kind of find a new set of friends and new set of connections. Um, one of the other pieces that really stuck out to me was for particularly for undergraduates, a lot of the har harassment and bullying that they saw was on a peer-to-peer -peer level in the res halls, um, you know, in class, um, really just kind of getting those microaggressions from people that they knew and sometimes their friends or their roommates, whereas graduate students actually felt it more from admin and staff and faculty who were calling them out on things. Um, one student actually wasn't able to have their financial aid fulfilled because for some reason he had, you know, checked the wrong box and it was like this whole thing of like, well, wait, you don't identify as this, you don't look like this identity. And it was just such a big deal. And so to hear that, you know, from the people that are supposed to be supporting you, it's like, wait a minute, like, how does that work? Um, and then, you know, going into the broader sense, you know, the community aspect, I learned a lot just about like the impact of culture and geography um, for a lot of these students, you know, especially one student who identified as Black Aboriginal and Aryan Indian and, you know, growing up in India versus coming to United States. He, he presented very, like, Indian, but he felt close to Black culture, and that was a part of his culture, but that navigation of like, but you don't look Black, right? So like, how can you identify within that culture, even though you don't look that way, and you're from a different country? So it was interesting to be able to see that. Although when he would go back to India and bring Black culture with him, people were like, heck yeah, like, <laughs> Blackness is cool, right? So it's like, wait, how does that work? Um, and then even just like the social aspect of, unfortunately, a lot of folks still believe that, you know, well, being mixed means that you're colorblind, right? Like you don't see color because you are this rainbow of shades and identities. And it was really interesting to hear from the students themselves who were like, I am adopting this, right? Like 
I just love all people. I don't care how you identify. Um, and that was really interesting. But also this notion of just a shared identity that like you and Anissa and I have talked about this before that like when you see somebody who's mixed, you just kind of know it's this radar and this I that like you don't have to identify yourself, right? Like it's like you kind of automatically outed, but then you know that there's the safe and brave space with that person. And so to for a lot of students to be able to have that, you know, kind of connection um, was really neat. And then unfortunately, just the impact of racial code switching, a lot of students, particularly those who were actually mixed with black, um, just the navigation of like being in certain spaces, I have to speak a certain way, I have to act a certain way, I have to look a certain way, um, was definitely just rooted in their experiences. But I mean, overall, you know, it was eye-opening for me to be able to just do this research and again open my eyes to other places and other people who do this. Since doing this research um, I had found out about the um, um, the Critical Mixed Race Studies Association. So shout out to uh, that association. They're based out, out of Chicago, actually at DePaul University. And they are a um, you know higher ed association where they host conferences every other year. They have like a board and a committee. They had a journal at one point, but I think the pandemic kind of threw things off. But it's really just a space for other mixed race people to be able to do this type of research, right? To feel supported to share the mixed race lived identity and and really kind of just you know solidify that like this is a thing right <laughs> and it it it's a thing and it is different than than other identities yes there are similarities to other types of microaggressions and you know invalidations and stereotypes that we see but being mixed there's a different there's a different tone that i think that level of you know feeling in between spaces um, you know, whether yourself or within the spaces that we navigate, um, again, that exotization and, and kind of, you know, ooh, like it's, it's mixed race is sexy kind of. Um, I feel like there's just nuances that you don't really see in other identity groups. Uh, and it's great to be able to just see people doing the work and supporting and um, making, making more visibility and awareness. So I'll stop talking there because I know that that was a lot. <laughs> But that is pretty much my like 100 plus page dissertation in a nutshell. <laughs> that was really great. And it kind of gives us so many different talking points to go off of. I think one, just because it was the last point, it really reminds me of part of, um, part of your dissertation where it came up wanting a place on campus specifically for mixed identities because it's hot. like for me, when I was an undergrad, I didn't really feel like being part of the Hawaii club was for me. Like I wanted to, but it still didn't feel like it was the right fit for me to explore who I was, um, who I am. Um, but knowing that like places like Berkeley have an or organization mixed at Berkeley, like I wish I had had that at my or at my undergrad and I think it's something that could possibly be here at Santa Clara um, and hopefully we can get somebody to come on the podcast and talk about that organization but yeah um, is there any 
Well, I mean, yeah, just to, to, you know, go back to that, you know, this was one of the implications in my work, as you had mentioned that, you know, are we, do we have safe and brave spaces for students who identify as mixed? Because this, a part of this had also come from my personal experience, particularly at UIC. Um, we have seven, what is known as cultures, Centers for Cultural Understanding and Social Change. So similar to our space here at Santa Clara, um, where there's, you know, like an MCC and things like that. But each of those organizations are separate. And if you ever look online, they're literally like spread across campus, like they're in different spaces. There's not really a lot of unity. Um, but one of the things when I had graduated with my master's, I had been invited to the graduation ceremony for the African-American Resource Center and the Latinx Resource Center. They were both on the same day at the same time. And I was like, really, you're making me choose between my identities? Like, this is terrible. So fun fact, I actually went to the black one, my master's and the Latinx one for my PhD. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to each. Um, but not everybody has that opportunity, right? And why should that even be the case that we have to, you know, um, you know, kind of disconnect all of these identities, especially for folks who may identify under multiple identities. So it was really interesting and a conversation that I had like with a couple of my friends in my program and other programs of like, yeah, like why don't, even if we don't necessarily create like a mixed race one, why don't they all just exist in the same space? We can have all of these orgs, you know, in one unit or one building and you can connect with each other and then those everyone else can connect and yeah it was definitely like an ongoing conversation I know even now um, uh, especially as it continues to build out because there's like a new disability resource center they have their women and leadership resource center um, there's like a gender and sexuality center so even all of these other identities that are intersecting it's like why are we making people choose so I would love to have a space like that here at Santa Clara um, one of the things that really drew me to SCU, aside from just the work in OML, is that compared to other institutions, and it, this was back in 2018, Santa Clara actually has like a really large mixed race population. Um, and there's still a little bit of work in terms of like exactly what the final numbers are. But knowing that we have so many students who like just outwardly identify as such, but don't really have the resources to support them um, is something that I hope that OML and just the institution at large could do a better job at. Cause I think it would be great to again, provide that that space and not have, I mean, we're constantly forced to choose and to have a space where you don't have to choose and you can support all of all of you, I, I think would be really awesome. I would love a space like that. Oh my goodness. That would be so amazing. I can't help but think um, as you were talking about how you went about selecting participants for your interviews and how you were very intentional about selecting people that identified in ways that weren't just the black white binary like I can't help but think of the people who are participating in this podcast right now like I do identify as black and white but we have black and Mexican or not black and Mexican white and Mexican white and Hawaiian black and Latina like there's a great amount of diversity even just between the four of us in terms of our mixed identities and I think that's such a beautiful thing and having a space to celebrate that other than this podcast space right now would be wonderful, right? And I mean, even, <laughs> yeah, I mean, even in addition to that, some of the findings as I was going through the, because I mean, you get to a point where you see the responses, but then it's like, what are the themes, right? Like, what are the big 
picture pieces. And two of them that really stood out to me is I, I as I tied, I try to be like witty with my titles and my chapters and things. Cause I'm like, this has to just be, you know, fun. Um, and one of the things I had titled was favoring privilege, opposing whiteness. And so at the end of every interview that I did with each of my students, I asked them the same question. Have you ever wished you were of another racial or ethnic background and you didn't identify as biracial or mixed? And if so, why? Every person said yes, all 12 people, no matter how they identified, whether they had whiteness in their family or not, but they, their answers were, yes, I have wished I was something else. I wished I was white. And it was so fascinating to me and, and really hard to hear um, because it was this notion of whiteness is privilege, right? Like all of these challenges that these students were facing, the microaggressions, the doubt, the imposter syndrome, in their mind, it was like, if I'm white, I don't have to deal with any of that. Like it's a free pass and everything will be okay. And it was really, again, just fascinating to kind of think through just the impact of whiteness, right? Of like, I mean, even for the students who were mixed with white, it was like, yeah, if I had to choose a side, <laughs> I'm choosing that side because I don't have to deal with, you know, having to defend this other part of me that may, I can't, maybe I can't defend, right? Or again, is just filled with so many challenges. Um, and that was really, really interesting. And another point that came up, again, around kind of the Black-White binary um, was the fact that just like, again, my intentionality of moving away from it, but also just making a note that like, that will always be the permanent like starting point. Because when we look at previous models of identity development, when we just look at the history, like the literature review of, you know, where all of this started, right? Like with colonialism, it's, it goes back to that, right? Like, and as much as I wanted to try and move away from it, like it was still very visible and present in ways, whether it was in the survey responses or interview responses. And I think that just speaks to the history at least here in America, right, of Black-white relations and Black-white, you know, um, relationships and things like that. Um, and that, like, it wasn't meant to be, like, dismissive, but it, it was very interesting, too, that even when I wasn't asking about it, it always, it always came up in conversation. Um, and I mean, we see that now, even outside of these types of conversations, right? That like it's things are still very much black, white, but it's because there's just so much history that's wrapped up into that within an American context. And I think it's important to honor that, honestly. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that the black, white binary and um, people who are black and white, is that's kind of like the OG mixed, at least in the United States, because of legacies of colonialism like you were talking about and I really appreciate the question that you asked at the end of the interviews and hearing you talk about it I was thinking how I would answer it and I think it depends on age honestly when I was a kid I think that and I've, I've written about it for creative writing classes but I definitely was envious of my peers who were fully white because I understood that their proximity to whiteness meant that they had greater privilege than I did. And I was jealous of them. Like I was jealous of my American girl dolls and everything like that. But as I got older and especially in high school, the first time I read The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison and I was seeing 
the child, the main character in that book, praying for blue eyes. My, it was heartbroken because I was like, how and why would you want, like, I understand why she would want that, but it was very hard for me to understand because at that point I was so celebratory of my blackness. And so now I think my answer to that question would be no, if I could choose a side, I would probably say that I'd rather be fully black <laughs> because that's how the majority of people perceive me. It, it goes back to the kind of like mixed radar thing. Like other mixed people can tell that I'm mixed, but the average white person doesn't look at me and they're like, yeah, she's white. Like no one, <laughs> no one is going to, no one's thinking that. And I've, this is a conversation I've had time and time again with my family members. Um, and we've talked about in the last episode, but that's such an interesting question. And I wonder if any of the respondents, did they, any of them indicate maybe when I, like I did, maybe when I was younger, this was the case. And as I got older, that was the case. Was yeah. there any sort of nuance to the responses? Yeah, actually one of the things that I point out, so I mean, you're, again, I think it's just the beauty of the shared mixed identity um, is that mo about maybe like half of the participants had shared that their answer to that question did change because of age. Um, most of them, the answer was like a hard no when they were younger, because again, they, they saw the beauty of not having to deal with all of these things. But a part of it was as they got older or in their words, more mature, the embarrassment and like the personal overcoming of mixed race identity that like they became more comfortable being open and honest that like, yeah, I am mixed, you know, what, what are you going to do about it? And that ended up shifting their, their answer to the question. So like, although they all answered yes, in terms of like, well, that's my first thought, but there was always that caveat behind it of like, but that's changed. So back in the day when I was younger, total yes. But as I've gotten older, and even for the first year students who were freshmen, um, you know, some of them were still kind of like, yes, maybe. <laughs> but you could tell that like, especially for the graduate students and the professional students, it was like, yeah, like I'm in my mid 20s, like my late 20s. I am who I am. <laughs> and if you don't like it, then sucks for you. And so I think just that level of like, learning more about yourself and being comfortable and not feeling as though being mixed is a bad thing or, you know, yes, there are challenges, but be proud of who you are. Right. And so that was really interesting to see as well. Yeah. It reminds me of a question my mom asked me like in the past few years, I don't remember if I brought it up in the last um, podcast, but she like asked me if I think that people should like have mixed relationships like as a child of a mixed relation or an interracial relationship based on my experience is it did it cause me harm like should people get together from other races and produce children and I told her well yeah like I'm here um <laughs> I think growing up the only thing that I wish had been different because I don't think I ever wished I was fully one or the other um I just wish I had more either of a balance of interaction with both of my family sides or more interaction with people who were like me mixed like me um I think that's where 
my longing went was not to be somebody else, to, but, but to be around more of who I identified as. Yeah, no, I mean, especially for, again, the students who are the participants who, you know, didn't have that equal contact, that was definitely something that resonated with them as well, right? That like, I want to learn more, or I want to be able to fully represent all of my myself, right? But I don't have the history, or I don't have the knowledge. And even like you had said, Grace, we're like, even trying to navigate those spaces as an older person, people look at you at like, wait, like what? You don't look like that. So why, why, what are you doing here? Right. And so even the idea that like, well, if I had it in my family, at least it was easier accessibility to be able to learn because it's harder trying to get that outside of that space, um, which I thought was really interesting. And I think even, I mean, even for some folks who did have contact for both sides, I mean, parents are not always wanting to talk about things, right? Like for some, for some of the participants, it was like, I, I visibly see my family, but like, we just don't talk about these things. Like so, <laughs> what's in the past is in the past, like things have been done or haven't been done. So I think that was also like another barrier for a lot of, a, a lot of the folks who are a part of the research. Uh, speaking to that specifically, because I am somebody who I, I identify as Mexican and Portuguese. There's some Irish in there. I don't know. Ancestry DNA is interesting. But <laughs> those were the two that I grew up with. And I was really heavily influenced by my Portuguese side because that was my mom's side. And a lot of uh, people's cultural understanding comes from typically their mother's uh, heritage. And so I was more immersed in their, in their side and less uh, immersed in my Mexican side. But that also came from, I say I was more immersed in each side, but I was kind of secluded from each of them. And that has to do with a lot of being from a small town. My families don't like each other. Like there's a lot of animosity on both sides. My parents are both the black sheep of their own families. <laughs> and so I grew up around people, but didn't see them enough to actually see myself and like understand where I come from. So a lot of my understanding, and I think I've talked about this with Hannah and Grace at separate times, but my understanding of especially my uh, Mexican side or my, my Latina side came from friends because I went and sought people. There was only one other girl that I knew of in my high school and I'm still very close friends with her. Hi, Brooklyn, um, who was Portuguese and Mexican. And so we're, we're still really close. And so I, that was my first place that I found it. But then we would turn around and like go to events or I would, uh, my best friend, uh, I didn't know it's fully as Mexican. And so I would go to events with her. I would uh, try her mom's cooking and stuff like that. So I immersed myself that way. And that kind of uh, kind of shaped me in the way that I understand myself. And it also painted how much my parents did not want to talk about me discovering myself like we talked about it before and it was like brought up but it was never gone into length and so now when I notice when I go home like I did this weekend I realize that when I talk about what I'm learning about myself I can see them visibly getting uncomfortable because they're like we that was not it's not something we talked about we don't want to talk about it and me talking about it so freely is a very weird concept for them that I didn't grasp until I saw them recently and was talking about it. 
Yeah. I mean, I definitely resonate with that. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful that I, I feel like I had a little bit, like I had support, but not enough of it. I mean, shout out to my parents. Love y'all both. They raised me to be proud to be all of who I am and never feel like I have to choose. But I do think subliminally there was, there were little parts where it was like one part has a little bit more pull than the other. So my dad, who is black, he had always, you know, said, yes, you know, you're, 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 you're Spanish and you're um, black, but the world is always going to see you as black first. So like that is the priority, right? No matter where you go, no matter what you do, you put that on paper and nothing else matters. And I think that started to kind of tip the scales of like, okay, like my blackness kind of is always at play more than my Latinness. Um, but unfortunately also what continued to tip those scales, my mom, who is the second youngest of 13 siblings, um, she has like no connection with her, her family because she married a black person. Most of her siblings married white people. And not to say that her mother, my grandmother wanted that, but the way that her siblings internalized success and like getting out of Nicaragua was the American dream via white people. And so when my mom married my dad in the early eighties and they got together and then obviously I was born in 1988, like they totally shunned her away and there was no connection. And so I really don't know a lot about the Latin side of my family. I know that there's a history and I know that there's people who exist out there in the world who have this last name that my mom used to have, but I'm so much more closer with the Black side of my family because that's who I was connected to, right? I have, I know my cousins, I know my aunts, I know my uncles. Um, you know, we lived near them in the Maryland, D.C., Virginia area, whereas for my mom's side, it's like, I couldn't tell you anything. And I think that also impacted just how I expressed my Latinness. Like, I'm one of those kids who unfortunately did not speak Spanish growing up. <laughs> so I'm not really good at speaking Spanish, but I can get by a little bit. Um, you know, I don't know how to make the proper food items, not my cup of tea, like all of those like cultural aspects. Like I could do that probably on the black side, but I can't really do that on the Nicaraguan side because there was kind of that imbalance. Um, and unfortunately, just like my mom never really talked about it. Like she just, I mean, I think now that she's in her early sixties and I think she's starting to realize like, oh man, like I should have shared this with you and I should have, you know, at least given you the history. Um, but yeah, it's kind of hard to be able, I mean, not to, I think for me personally, it's hard for me to claim sometimes a Latin identity because I feel so removed from it. But it's interesting because people perceive me as Latin first because of the way that I look and people are like, wait, you're black? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so like, it's like a, it's an interesting hodgepodge, like you said, because of the either close connection or far connection from your family. So, yeah. Oh, so Hannah, you can go ahead first if you want to. Okay. No, you, you've already started talking. Go, keep going. Keep going. Not that. Anyway, I was just going to say that reminded me of like, especially like the food aspect of it. My mom is a chef. She is very, uh, she does, she cooks really well. Why couldn't I <laughs> actually say that? She cooks really well. She And she always tried to learn things in a more authentic way. So I wasn't like completely absent to like my, uh, 
to my Mexican side because she learned how to make those dishes. Uh, specifically, a lot of stuff came from learning from my dad's grandmother, uh, Mylita. Her and my mom had a really weirdly close relationship. Like they, she was just like, this is my daughter. I, I take her in. This is mine. So she learned a lot from her, but I also have recently been trying to learn my own understanding of those dishes and <laughs> reminds me of a text that I sent Grace earlier because I found out Grace is vegan and I was like my sister's vegan and one of my favorite dishes that I was telling her about is pasole and I love pasole so I was like oh I'm gonna try to make a vegan version for Grace but also because my sister's uh, vegan I can make it for her and so Grace was like why are you doing this why did you I literally I dropped it off at the OML it's waiting for her there um, and she asked me what, what did I deserve, uh, deserve for this? And I texted her back. I hardly ever get to be the one to share the parts of my Mexican culture, uh, to somebody who has never had it. I'm usually the one still learning. So this is a loving extension of being mixed, uh, same as I do when I share meals with Hannah. Um, also after this weekend, being back home, it's nice to share in spaces where I'm accepted and wanted. And like that going, like rounding it all back to me learning about my own culture, getting to teach somebody else, like this is a food that I love, and also the importance of those safe spaces and why we need spaces like that on campus. I could cry right now. <laughs> I just about died when you sent me that text because it was, it's so special to me that you would want to take the time out of your day to learn about your culture just for you, but take the time out of your day to cook something for me that's, you know, vegan that I can eat, that then you can share with your sister. Like there are so many layers to it and I'm so grateful and I'm so excited for dinner tonight or lunch tomorrow. <laughs> I'm really pumped um, and really grateful for you. And I think that's such a beautiful way to go about cultural exchange. And that's honestly how I view things like this podcast too. Like I'm learning about y'all's cultures and cultures that aren't my own and it's such a beautiful thing and like I said I could cry so I'm gonna stop talking but so nice thank you so much <laughs> I don't know how to segue from the topic that we got to though um I can say like being mixed with Native Hawaiian I didn't get to see my family very often because also like growing up we didn't have the money to go to Hawaii so like um when I'm explaining to other friends that I am they're like oh how often do you get to go I'm like I've been twice in my life the first time I don't really remember either and people are like oh I've gone more than you have and I'm like that's cool um <laughs> but I think part of I've never felt disconnected from that part of me more because like I have aunties over there who would call me all the time growing up now that there's social media like will connect through like Instagram or Facebook and stuff like that. But I still never felt comfortable saying, oh, I'm native Hawaiian or something like that. Um, and I learned during undergrad about like being Hapa, which is really important to me, but I also learned that so many people try to have like claimed that term, whether or not they're native Hawaiian, and it comes into a whole like, like similar to the black and white mix, like native Hawaiian and white mix stems really deeply from colonization. It stems from militarization of Hawaii 
Um, and obviously that's not how my parents got together, but it was seen as kind of like a step for my father to be closer to whiteness, to leave Hawaii, to go to school in Washington, to marry my mother, to do all these things. And so like the complexities within how I feel towards my mix, like there's so much I'm trying to learn because also that population is so small, but how, like the term Hapa appeared from that population. Um, and just the way that I'm perceived too, um, kind of like going back a little bit, um, we were talking about like how we're perceived to be one race or the other. In my experience, it's always depended on who I'm around. So like, I never could feel fully white around my white family or around white friends because that's not how they saw me. But around people from oh, pretty much any other race, I'll be perceived as white, unless they're also mixed. Like even at the beginning of the school year, Anissa and I had a friend say like, she thought both of us were just white. That was it, no other mix. And I was like, that's so weird because the first time I saw Anissa on screen, I was like, yeah, she's mixed with something. I'm not entirely sure what, but she's mixed. And so it's like, I'm getting more and more used to being able to call my mi self mixed race. Like I never felt comfortable calling myself like biracial because in my head, like you would put in the dissertation that's so closely uh, linked to the black and white mix. And so I didn't think that was meant for me but like being able to call myself Hapa or even just mixed race, like I feel as I get older, I'm getting more comfortable with like my identities. Yeah. It, is over. <laughs> I feel like it really speaks to as well, just kind of the quant, the trying to quantify your identity. That's been such a common discussion topic amongst friends and just others of like, how, like how much are you right I mean and even if we think of the history of like the one drop rule and things like that where you know there was a time when people would be like well I'm 118th and 116th and you know it's like you can't do that right like that's not real and and trying to overcome that for yourself because that's how we were socialized to think of identity right that like if you don't have this amount or if you don't have these markers or like you said if you've never been to where you're from or if you're or even if you're not from there and you were born in a different place like how are you actually that identity right like do you do you actually qualify <laughs> to identify as that um and that's something that i struggled with a lot when i was younger because i used to self-identify as half black half latina because i always felt that i was two different things right like and it was some sometime during either college or grad school where somebody was like you know that you're all of both right like there's no like half or like quarter or you know there's no number like what does that mean and i started to move out of saying half and half and just say i'm black and latina like full full stop full person like there's no number <laughs> associated with it but it's hard when we like live in a world where again you have to kind of like quantify what that identity is without even like knowing how to do that right like somebody says they're 116 this like how do you what what does that even look like like <laughs> like how do you even know so yeah but i think it's just the way that we're socialized to think about you know 
what makes you a full or like, you know, and it, it goes back to even just the history of like being pure, right? Like, again, that one drop taints the whole thing. And it's like, ugh, just so many like problematic <laughs> historical narratives. Well, like in Hawaii, before colonization, before the US, like overthrew the kingdom, it was a very diverse community. Like, it was still not everyone being 100% Kanaka Maoli, like there's always been a lot of diversity. And then after colonization, then came the like, you have to be this percentage to own land. You have to, to have like land reserved for you. You have to be 50%. You have to be 50% to attend these schools. There was just such an emphasis placed on how much are you of this or that. Yeah, that's something I've been thinking of recently too, like the question of how much are you? I was talking to Joanna about it the other day, but my dad got super into genealogy over the pandemic and did a ton of research. And he had all of my family members take the 23andMe tests and everything. Um, and he was fascinated because he's someone who, I mean, no one's going to look at him and assume that he's anything other than fully black. And he felt thought that's what he was. He knew, obviously, being from the Caribbean, that there had to have been a history of slavery in his family, but he wasn't sure how much whiteness would be in his blood from that. And he learned that he was like maybe 18% white. And that was shocking to him. <laughs> he was like, how do I quantify this within me? And it's something that for him, he's not going around like, oh, I'm 18% white. Like, that's not a flex. Um, but it was really interesting for me and it became something that it, I don't, hurt is not the right word, but it tipped the scales of like, I was no longer 50% white, 50% black, but more white than black by a small amount. And like I said, I don't think hurt is the right word, but I definitely felt a certain type of way when I learned that that was the case, because that's not what people see when they look at me. So that hasn't been my experience going about my life and my day-to-day -day life. Um, and now my dad teases me. <laughs> he, oh man, he has fun, 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 fun teasing my sister and I. Like if we say something, anything that is he doesn't agree with or is silly or something, he's like, that's the 60% white talking. <laughs> And my sister and I are like, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> and I love him dearly. I love my family dearly. And I'm glad that we can joke about it now. Because when we first found that out, we were like, hmm, that's so interesting. And now it's like this big joke that my sister and I are like 60% white, 40% black. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's the 60% white jumping out. Um, but it's really interesting to think about like, colonial past and um talking to someone yesterday about how at the know my name discussion actually that we are our ancestors in a way and one of the quotes from the book that we discussed was Chanel saying that every generation gets a little bit freer um she was talking about that in relation to her grandmother who was from China her feet were bound and her mother's feet weren't and her feet weren't and her grandmother's feet were four inches which is tiny, her feet, she's a size nine and a half. 
and I promise this has a point, <laughs> but she was using that metaphor and that example to illustrate how every generation gets a little more free. So when my dad presented me with all of the genealogical research he had done, um, and he's able to point to kind of our original ancestor and the slave who was stolen and taken to the Caribbean, to Barbados specifically, um, it was one of those things that I wonder like how much, and not how much, but what of my blood and what of my composition is that reflects that legacy. Um, and I was telling Joanna, I highly recommend 23andMe. <laughs> this is not sponsored by 23andMe, but it is a really wonderful way to see not what you are, but who you are. Um, and it, there were just a lot of powerful moments where things clicked for me. Um, we found out that my original ancestor was from Nigeria. And so all of my blackness is Nigerian. And that's not something I found out until two years ago, but for a lot of my life, I've loved Nigerian literature. And so that was a weird thing for me. I'm like, why did I pick this country out of a continent full of countries to read about? Like, what is it about Nigeria that drew me to it? And then I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there wondering like, oh, maybe it's because some part of me knew um, that I was Nigerian. And it's just a really powerful thing. And I think a lot about ancestors and how we can connect to them. Um, and that's like on both sides of my family too. I think about where my mom's ancestors were during the wars in Europe and what that was like. So that was kind of a rant, but <laughs> I just wanted to share those thoughts. No, I was gonna add like that feeling. So my brother was gifted a thing for Ancestry.com to get his DNA tests and stuff. We're not 100% convinced that it's super accurate, <laughs> but it was just so interesting to see. But it also brought up this like almost panic in me to see that like maybe I'm not as much Native Hawaiian as I thought I was. Um, but like the things that were in there weren't necessarily like white that tipped the scale. Um, my grandmother's parents are both first generation from Germany. Um, and so we're like, oh, we are very German probably, but we're more Vietnamese than we are German. And we have no idea where that came from. And so I don't know, it like, it, it's really interesting to me. And I think it made me have to re, identify myself almost in that moment but it didn't really change a whole lot because it was also just like a surprise like oh Vietnamese over here some like random stuff all over the place and I thought that was actually so cool that there's parts of myself that I didn't even know existed um but I also oh what was the other thing I was gonna add on to that like joking with your family now we joke a lot with my grandma because she's always been like we my siblings and I very much try to bring out our negative Hawaiian heritage where we can because it's something we want to learn about so my grandmother also really wants us to make sure to celebrate our German side because we're very German and now we're just like grandma we are more Vietnamese than we are German we need to focus on that now <laughs> So it's just so fun to do, but I also don't take it to heart that it's super accurate. Um, 
but also my grandfather was really into, both of my grandfathers were really into genealogy. And for um, certain academic purposes, I looked through my native Hawaiian grandfather's genealogy and it goes back so far into like, it's not mythical, but it goes back to generations that predate history, predate being recorded technically. Like there was no Hawaii yet. And so like the lands aren't, not that they're not accurate, but they're kind of more, um, it could have been this place or it could have been this place, but in written history, this is what it was called. And we haven't completely discovered where that is yet. And so like getting to see that on my non-white side, especially was so special. So like getting to connect, I think you said it's like not what you are, but who you are. I think it's also just like where I come from building on to like who I am. So that was really special. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I mean, doing ancestry, I've, I've done ancestry DNA with my parents. Um, and I had a similar experience as to grace because my, my dad actually is mixed race. If you really think about it, because his great grandmother is white, but he actually just identifies as black. Um, but he actually had out of me and my mom, the most whiteness, which makes sense because his great grandmother's white and he, he was so mad <laughs> and similar. We're like me and my mom were like, mm -hmm, here you are black man. Okay. Um, but my mom actually had the second most white, um, according to the results. Um, and again, I think just coming from Nicaragua, like again, the colonization, it was pretty much like white and Spain Spanish. So definitely makes sense. But what I found really interesting, and again, just trying to think of like the history, um, I ha we had like connections to like Italy and like other parts of Europe where it's like, huh, like how did that happen? But my Nicaraguan, which is actually unlike my mom, I actually had more indigenous blood in me than she did in her. And just trying to think through again, like, you know, when we think of our ancestors, like what did that like movement look like, right? Whether it was because of colonization, whether it was because of, you know, just travel and immigrating to other spaces. And how did how did that impact those individuals and how that ended up making its way down the line, so to speak. Um, but it's kind of, I mean, I feel like it's one of those things where as much as some people want to make the argument of there is like a pure race, I mean, when you think about it, there's not. I mean, we're all mixed to some degree. We're all multiracial and multicultural because of the histories, whether it be good or bad, that flow through all of our, our lineages, right? That so many things happened across the world that you know, I think it's, in, I've spoken to a, a student who goes to school here who also identifies as mixed. And we've had conversations of like, you know, there really, again, there really is no pure race, even, and even for white folks who want to claim it, it's like, y'all are mixed too. Like there's no, there, so it's just fascinating how, but the way that we've gotten to where we are, where we are is that mixed race has become like its own separate thing. And it's like, but many of us have much more of a mixed identity in common. I think it's more, but I think the way that people conceptualize mixed race is like, well, do you have parents who 
physically look different, right? And not really thinking about, well, even if you do come from like a homogenous background, you still may have some of that in your family. So it's really interesting. Again, just the, again, the, the quantifying and, you know, thinking of how we're all intertwined and yeah, it's fascinating. And even though Ancestry DNA and like 23andMe are not like completely legit, it is kind of fun just to be able to think through. And again, like if you look at the map of like, wow, like maybe my ancestors were like in Africa and then like the colonizers came from Europe and then they went to Central America, like like, like just seeing the, the path, right? <laughs> yeah, you're, all of your uh, ancestry and 23andMe stuff sounds so much more interesting than mine. All we found out was somebody's kids weren't somebody else's kids. <laughs> So that was fun, but, and they don't listen to this podcast, so it's fine. <laughs> like, but yeah, that was, that, but one of the other things that came out of it was my sister, because me and my siblings all took it and found out that all of us were different, like, percentages of each anything. And so then my sister got really sad because somewhere along the line, she heard you have to be at least 20% of something to be of that race, which is bull. But she got sad because everything uh, there was like five different things and they're all like 18 like 13 all of these things she's like I'm not anything and I was like you're everything <laughs> like it's fine but in because I kind of want to wrap there's another topic that I want to kind of go towards uh speaking of kind of that and also what we were talking about earlier with uh beauty standards and I talked about it in the last episode as well uh, from your uh, dissertation, Joanna, I wanted to talk about the uh, experience of dating and relationships because that struck a really, really big chord in me, uh, specifically because every now and then I'll tell somebody about like one of the relationships I had early on. Uh, one of the first boyfriends that I ever had, uh, uh, definitely before I came into like my identity is mixed and before I even understood my uh, sexuality as pansexual. Uh, he was a white man from North Carolina, and he was in Monterey doing service in the Navy. And I remember sitting in the car with him, and someone was walking by with a Black Lives Matter shirt on, and he was, and he like looked over and like he made a face, so I automatically got annoyed. And then he looked at me, and he was like, "Well, don't Brown Lives Matter?" And he like up and downed me, and I looked at him like, "What are you talking about?" But, and then that led into a whole conversation. He was like, well, I was just trying to stick up for you because you're, uh, you're the first brown girl I've ever dated. And like those sort of, so like that, it took me back to that moment. So I kind of wanted to expand and talk about the fetishization of mixed individuals. And especially for a lot of heterosexual, cisgendered white men specifically feeding into that fetish, but also not wanting to take a relationship forward because that was a lot of the research that I've done and also my experience was everybody wants to have sex with the mixed person. A lot of people don't want to like have a relationship because it's too complicated to explain to other people. So if anybody else has thoughts on that or if Joanna you would have talked about more about that experience or any anything like that. Yeah, no, I mean, especially when going back to my research, I mean, knowing that, again, this wasn't like a question that I had when I was interviewing students and not even a question on the survey, but it popped up in the data of like, okay, like this is clearly something that people are navigating, but 
unfortunately it was predominantly the female identified folks and predominantly having to deal with that from, like you said, white cisgender heterosexual men who just really were attracted to mixed race women um, because of that exotization, because of really just based on looks. Um, there was one student, as you were talking about, just having like sexual relations who had shared a story of like, this guy just wanted to be with her so he could make mixed other mixed race babies and like, you know, have this like beautiful population. And it was just, yeah, it was super cringeworthy stories, but also just really sad to hear the women share this, right? That like, here they are trying to navigate their own identities. And at one point, some of them when they were younger, so maybe like 18, 19, flocked to, to this type of energy because it helped to validate themselves, right? Like, oh, this person finds me beautiful and this person finds me attracted, attractive. But then when they started to see the forest for the trees, right? And like, wait a minute, like they're not really treating me like I should be treated and not valuing my identity in a way that it's uplifting me, but really just, you know, saying, saying things that are just ridiculous. Um, really start started to like shift their framework as to like okay maybe I shouldn't be in relationships with people like this or maybe I should the, they're red flags right um and I, I think I had quoted one of the participants who had said that right where like there was this whole conversation in her head where it was like well he thinks I'm beautiful so then I must be beautiful. So this is okay that this person is saying things like, oh, you know, I love that mixed girls have curly hair or, you know, this is really what's in right now. Like I see it on TV and movies or I can't, I can't tell what you are. And that like turns me on in a way, like, again, just really creepy things. And it, you see again, that personal, you know, navigation of trying to like, yeah, that may sound nice, but like timeout, like that, that's a microaggression. Um, and I, you know, unfortunately, this is something that still happens to this day. I mean, I know people, shout out to the people that I know, you know who you are, who have said certain things like that or believe that like this is this is a thing, right? We see it on social media when maybe celebrities who are in interracial marriages or, you know, have children where they're like, like, I think it was the other day I was looking at something with Chrissy Teigen and John Legend about like, your children are so beautiful because you're mixed. And it's like, really? Like, we're still in this headspace of like, that's not why they got together, y'all. Like, <laughs> they got together because they love each other and they care about each other. It has nothing to do with, you know, but, you know, I think that just goes to show how we're socialized to think, right? Of like the beauty standard of even just that colonial mindset for white cisgender heterosexual males of like, you know, the colorism aspect and, and the, the creation of like this, you know, package that is different and how do we, you know, yeah, it's really, when you think about it, like, it's really icky. <laughs> it's so icky. Oh, I was going to share. I've definitely felt like fetishized by white men, but also by black men because of colorism, which touches on your last point. Like, I am no different because I'm half white. So like, why, why are you looking at me? Like I'm this hugely different person from you when we're, we both identify as black, I identify as biracial black. Like what is, what is going through your mind? And it's colonialism and it's proximity to whiteness. That's what's going through their minds, but it feels so icky. And it especially feels icky for me when it comes to black men, because I'm like, 
you have a black mother like a black mother raised you and then you were going to <laughs> my dad is listening to this why this is not dad this does not have to do with you he had a black mother who was wonderful um shout out to you granny she's no longer with us but she's amazing um but <laughs> there are a lot of black men who I'm like you have a black mother and this isn't to say that like my dad would have married anyone he fell in love with right but there are black men who will only marry white women or light women or biracial black women like myself and that makes me really uncomfortable because I'm like what happened for you to think this way other than obviously how society raises them but I wonder how we can stop the narrative of, oh yeah, my wife needs to be light because our children need to be light. Like, I understand that there may be some sort of like primal survival instinct there. Like that's how people survived for generations, like get, having their generations be lighter and lighter. But we're in a place, thankfully today in most parts of the world where that's not the case anymore. You can survive being dark. Um, not always, but sometimes. And so it's like, how can we, how can we stop that from happening now? Um, because now there's a greater appreciation for mixed people and um, for interracial marriages that hopefully will be reversed because of Roe v. Wade, but that's a whole other rant. Um, but <laughs> it's all connected. Um, I'm just hoping that we can stop the narrative that you have to, in order to survive, you have to um, marry or be with someone who's lighter than you and therefore your children have to be lighter than you. I just think it's a very harmful idea. I understand why it exists, but it's harmful. Yeah, and there's actually a lot of research around that. When I was doing my literature review to try and find like these historical time moments of like anti-miscegenation laws and you know the whole Loving v. Virginia era and trying to pinpoint like how all of this plays into the, the bigger picture, um, at one point I kind of went down this like rabbit hole of just interracial marriage and trying to understand interracial relationships. And there's research, uh, exactly what you had said in terms of uh, many black men who prefer to date outside of their race period, whether it's white, Asian, identified, Latinx, because of the colorism, but also because of the harmful narratives against black women. There's a lot of uh, the research that shows that Black men will say like, well, I don't want to put up with a Black woman because of her attitude or because of, you know, the way that she looks or because of, you know, all of these stereotypes and biases. And it's like, what? Like, those are your people. Um, but even on the flip side of that, like, if you look at other races, um, and there was an article that I had, I had at one point where it really literally highlighted how like, Black men are more likely to date white women. White men are more likely to date uh, AAPI or APISA-identified women. And um, I think Latinx men are more likely, honestly, are actually more likely to date Latinx women, <laughs> um, uh, which was interesting. But again, like this notion of like, it's not just the problematic nature of the interracialness, but the stereotypes that play into what's on the other side, right? That like, well, how is this now playing into how we treat black women? How is this now playing into how we continue to exoticize 
appease identified women? Like how was that all playing into it? Which I thought was really interesting. That wasn't necessarily a part of my research, but like you said, thinking about like, how did this come to be, right? Like, where did this all stem from? And a part of it, like you said, is socialization and just kind of, you know, the way that, again, beauty standards and the impact of colorism have impacted our world. Um, but I think a lot of it also is just, again, that, like you all said, that colonial mindset of like, the end goal, right? That like, if I'm going to procreate with this person, if we are going to be successful, they have to look a certain way, they have to have certain characteristics and certain features, because that's now my child. And I have to be responsible for this little person who's going to grow up. And like, I don't want like a dark skin person, right? Like, I don't want a, a, a somebody who's going to be, you know, playing into all of these biases and stereotypes. And I think that's, again, the bigger picture that's so harmful, right? That like, we're still in a space that like light is good, dark is bad. And it's it's just so rampant in our society and adds to even just this conversation about being mixed. But even if you're not mixed, it's like, it's, yeah, it's just so prevalent. And there is still obviously so much more that we have to talk about in general. And so much more that we will do and cover in future episodes. Hopefully Joanna will also be a part of those in the future, but we are winding down on time. I did not realize how long we went. That was my bad. We got so in depth of conversation and I was so intrigued, um, but we will be doing this again, the, this again in the future. Uh, now I just wanna wrap up. Is there anything else that anybody wants to like end on? Anything that anybody wants to promote or talk about? Um, the floor is yours. Well, I'm always down to promote myself because I'm an only child and that's how I roll. Um, but also just want to share resources because again, the work of mixed race, just scholarship and experiences and identities is just such a near and dear thing to my heart as somebody who is a part of this community um, and really wants to create more spaces, especially within higher ed to be able to have these conversations. Um, so a couple of things for folks who are watching the video and also on audio and popping this into the chat, but I'm sure this will be shared later. Um, back in 2017, I actually did a TEDx talk at Lake Forest College in Illinois about being mixed race and queer in particular. Um, it's called The Space Between to be mixed race and queer. Uh, so feel free to check that out if you want to hear a little bit uh, of me in 2017 uh, sharing my experiences within that intersection. And then I can also share, I need to look it up, but I've done a couple of blog posts, um, which is actually where that TEDx talk kind of started. Uh, I found community in Chicago, uh, connecting with other mixed race people. And there are a couple of uh, bloggers that I met where we just had moments where we shared our stories about being mixed race, um, but also just thinking through, and this was what, like 2016. So thinking about mixed race in like a cultural setting, um, uh, a mainstream like media setting. So there's a couple of pieces that I've written that are out there in the interwebs and happy to share that so that they're linked in the description. Um, but yeah, feel free to check those out. Again, I'm always happy to talk about all things mixed. If you want to read my dissertation, it's not light, but it's interesting. <laughs> so also feel free to check that out too. Um, and yeah, just wanted to share that as just additional resources. <laughs> It's beyond interesting. I love TED Talks. I'm so excited to listen to this. I'm also dying. The only comment on the video is just, I agree. 
<laughs> so someone out there agrees <laughs> with your experiences being mixed race and queer, which is so cool that, um, and I know you said you haven't shared your dissertation widely, but I'm hoping that maybe some of the folks listening right now can read it and can share it because it is really amazing. Um, even if you don't have time to read the whole thing, because it is very long, I highly <laughs> recommend checking it out. I'm so excited to listen to this TED talk. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was, it was actually something that was not. So at the time I was working at an LGBTQ plus community center in Chicago called the center on Halstead, shout out to y'all um, on the North side of Chicago. They had, I was the director of racial equity and inclusion at the time time there and they had reached out to us to have somebody actually from the community be a part of their TEDx um, you know kind of slate because like most colleges you know they're reaching out to students and community members and nobody wanted to do it in my my colleagues were like no like uh, it's too much or like I don't know what I'm going to say and at the time I was dating somebody who was kind of toxic um, and really just having a lot of challenges with being queer, with being mixed. Um, and even just like my like balance of like femininity and masculinity and just trying to like come to grips with it. And I had written a blog post, which is again, what the TEDx talk is based off of. And I don't know, something in me was like, you just need to use this as a moment to like get it out and like share your story with the world. Um, so yeah, Lake Forest College is about like an hour and a half north of the city of Chicago in the city of Lake Forest. My um, mom is from Lake Forest. It's oh a very God. tiny town yeah. and she's going to freak out when I tell her this is now <laughs> the third time in three weeks someone has mentioned Lake Forest being there. And two of my colleagues are from Lake Forest, like one of my classmates and then someone in an embrace session from Lake Forest. It is a tiny town, like it is 20,000 people, maybe. I've actually never been there until I did this. <laughs> But yeah, it was such a great experience. And um, I, I believe they have the other talks that were a part of this because the theme for that was um, something like going against the grain or something like that. I can't remember what it was, but it was definitely like a queer theme. Um, and yeah, it was just an awesome opportunity. And again, I think just important to be able to raise the visibility of mixed stories, right? That not everybody has the same experience, but there are a lot of shared moments. Um, and to be able to just kind of promote that, it was it was really awesome. And I have actually gotten connected to a couple of people who have either watched it or um, heard about it since then. Um, so yeah, just a just a plug. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been another episode of Word on the Street. Another episode of Growing Up Mix. Thank you all for joining, and please come again sometime. All right. Bye.